Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and hopefully the listeners of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. About 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. So if you would like to save money on your life insurance to see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS, or you can go over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and click on the link on the homepage. Very easy. And you can save money on your life insurance. Who doesn't want to save money, right? Okay. Today's episode. So this was actually a Facebook live that we did a couple of weeks ago, and it is with Dr. Michael Boddy. So he is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Physical Therapy Program, board certified in orthopedics, and is a fellow in the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. He helped to create the Duke University Medical System Orthopedic Manual Therapy Fellowship and was the first graduate of that program in 2008. In 2012, he received his PhD in clinical science from the University of Colorado with an emphasis on comparative effectiveness trials in orthopedics. After graduating with his PhD, he was the director of the Regis University Orthopedic Manual Therapy Fellowship as well as an instructor within that program. He is currently an affiliate faculty member of the Regis OMPT Fellowship Program, and in addition to his experience as a fellowship director, he has assisted with the design of several residency programs. So that's why today we are talking about fellowships versus residencies. What's the difference? What is Michael's best advice for developing a competitive application and exploring different financial options? Because we all know things cost money. Uh, Do residencies and fellowships enhance your clinical practice? And should a residency be mandated to elevate the practice of physical therapy? So we covered a lot of ground on this podcast, and I'm so happy that Michael came on, kind of coordinates with our episode on Monday, which was all about PhDs with Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley. So if you didn't listen to that, I suggest you go back and listen to that, and it gives you some options on where to take your career. PhD, fellowship, residency, there's lots of ways to go. So a huge thanks to Michael, and again, of course, thanks to Health IQ for sponsoring today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Live. And today, we're going to be tackling the difference between residencies and fellowship. So today, I'm joined by Michael Bade. So Michael, why don't you kind of tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. Hi, Karen. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast today and really appreciate you taking the time to explore a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So currently, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Anschutz Medical Campus. Um, and my role here is I'm primary an educator in the DPT program as well as a researcher. Um, and I'm heavily involved in our PhD program currently, but I've also been involved with fellowship programs and residency education. Um, I'm the past director of Regis University's uh, Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship, 
um, as well as I currently do some consulting work on several other residency programs um, that we're trying to bring online here in Colorado. So um, I think that's the short bio for me. Perfect. So very qualified to speak on this subject, right? Very happy to. Yep. All right. So and for those of you who are on now or watching, please feel free to leave a quote or to leave uh, your name and where you're watching from in the comments. And as we go along, if you have questions, type them in because we will try and get to all of your questions as we're going through. So hello to everyone and just Please write down where you're watching from and we'll get started. So like I said, today we're gonna to be talking about residency training and fellowship training. So I think the best way to start this conversation would be to talk about the differences between the two. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question, and it's a super common one, not only from our DPT students, but many practicing clinicians. Um, and I think it's largely because there's slight differences between the medical model and the PT model. Um, if we think about residency and fellowship education, um, it's structured the same as the med medical model, where residency is really meant to be a specialization um, within your overall profession. So, for instance, in physical therapy, we have many specialty areas like pediatrics, neurology, orthopedics, women's health. Um, there's many uh, programs out there and specialties. Then fellowship, and so that would be residency level is where I'm gonna specialize in an area. Then subspecialization is where you come into fellowship training. And the idea is that you're already a specialist within your area, and now you're gonna take kind of a deeper dive into an area within that. And so the, I think the easiest example for me, because I'm an orthopedic clinician, um, is an orthopedic manual physical therapy fellowship. The idea being that you're already a specialist in orthopedics, and now you're gonna dive in and learn a little bit more about hands-on manual therapy skills, with the idea, you're gonna bring that back to integrate with all your other general orthopedic knowledge. And so that's kind of the key, so specialization versus subspecialization. However, um, then you, and they both involve elements of didactic and mentorship components, um, so there's a lot of similarities on them, um, as well as they're both kind of similar lengths depending upon the programs you're talking about. Um, However, um, you do have some differences in terms of the types of mentoring experiences you get. So your mentors in your residency program have to at least be specialists within your area. So if you're going through an orthopedic residency, your mentor would have to be at least OCS qualified um, or certified, I should say. And then for fellowship training, your mentors primarily have to be certified at the subspecialization level, although there's some kind of minutia in terms of where they can come from. Um, and then finally, I'd say there's some differences in entrance qualifications that have recently changed that some people aren't even really aware of, such that you can't just go into a fellowship program now. You actually need to have gone through a residency or passed a board certification exam. Um, whereas when I went through fellowship training, I went straight into fellowship training because there was no residency program um, in my local area. And um, I was able to do that because I had experience within that field of orthopedics. Got it. So, hey, Lex. So we have Lex from Utica, New York. Um, now, let's talk about these. Res so let's first talk about residency programs. So at your talk at CSM, one of the slides was all of the residency programs, I think, that were offered in the United States. Right. And a lot of them were orthopedic. I think mm -hmm. the majority, I think there were well over 100 orthopedic residencies. There are over 100. Residencies and a lot of other of the specializations. Yeah. Now, with, let's say there's 300,000 PTs, PT students in mm -hmm. the U.S., 
and they want to all go on a residency or a fellowship, it's obviously competitive. So what advice do you have, let's say for some students watching now or for people who might be interested in going into residency or fellowship, what advice do you have to make their applications more appealing or competitive? Yeah, so I think that's that's a great question. Um, I hear that one a lot. Uh, you know, our, we have a pediatric residency program here, for instance. I know we had well over 22 applicants for one spot. So that's like a 5% acceptance rate, as if you would. And then I know some of the other residency programs around the country have much higher application rates um, for one or two spots. So it definitely is a very competitive market. Um, my advice, uh, I think there's a lot of things you can do to enhance your application. So first, I like to think of networking. Um, I think networking is probably one of the more impactful things you can do. Um, try to meet the director if possible. Some directors are actually very approachable. Some actually don't like to meet uh, potential residency candidates. They don't like to bias themselves, they say. They have to keep a clean slate. But many of them will allow you to talk to their past graduates, um, which I think is a great first step. First of all, that kind of gets you to know a little bit more about the culture of the program and maybe avoiding residency programs that aren't quite the right fit for you, um, as well as that helps because residency directors often talk to their past graduates and many of them continue to teach for them. And so they might say, oh, did you talk to this candidate? And it's like, oh yeah, I talked to them. They seem like a very strong applicant. Um, and so they often leverage their, uh, their graduates to kind of get some additional knowledge about potential applicants. So I definitely recommend reaching out to directors as well as past graduates of the program. Um, then I think it goes without saying that you should have really solid recommendations within your area of specialty that you're applying. So if you're a DPT student who's out there on clinical rotations right now, you, you really want to be thinking about making a great impression on your CI who's going to be ideally writing you a very strong recommendation for that residency in that specialist area, um, as well as your content leaders in your DPT curricula. Um, so if I'm interested in going into neuro, like I want to really do well on my neuromuscular management tracks um, and such that I can get a really strong recommendation from my professor. Because as a past director, I highly value um, our professional colleagues and their recommendations for your, your, you know, your proficiency within that specialty area, as well as how good of a resident they think you'll be. Um, then I always like to say, um, avoid some small mistakes that kind of tend to bias uh, directors maybe a little bit away from you. And that's uh, calling and asking them about very simple information uh, that's generally found on your website. So the idea that you haven't really done much homework on their program prior to approaching them about their program. So you might just be asking them very general questions. That's very easy to find this information. And one of the things that we really look for in most residents is really to be self-directed learners and be able to go out and find information. And because and, we're really looking for you a very high level candidate uh, because you have that ability to take on a student who's really well, ready to learn at a very high level. And so um, I, I say you really want to show that you've done the initiative. And when you call on and talk to directors or email in your communications, however you're approaching them, you want to approach them with very specific questions about their program, um, as well as like how that relates to your goals as a PT, as well as your learning styles. And so it shows me that you really thought deeply about how well of a fit this program is going to be because it's a lot like a dating game in some ways, right? Um, as a director, I'm trying to find a good resident who will really mesh well with my team. And as a, as a student or a resident coming in, you want to find someone who really has a good learning style for your style of learning and is really going to match well with your career objectives. Um, I think my last kind of competitive trick is 
work for your employer um, if you can to kind of get in the back door because some of these are really competitive. Um, I know some of my past students haven't been successful in getting into some more competitive residencies. And so they took a job within that organization mm -hmm. and worked there for a year or two, reapplied. And now they're in that residency because they have already been there working. They're, they're well known within that organization. And it's an easy call as a director to say, I'm going to take the entity that I know and I know that's doing well and show me for two years that they want to do this and they're ready for it. And so that's kind of my like backdoor trick into trying to increasing your competitiveness. So Got it. So basically don't ask stupid questions. To that's, a, that's a good one. Directors like don't ask how to apply. Like that would probably not yeah. go well <laughs> your application process. And it sounds like it's all about relationships, right? Just like I, most other things in life, you really want to try and form some sort of relationship because it's not all about just what's on your resume, what's on that piece of paper. Because if you have to, like you said, it's kind of like a dating site. If you, you want to be able to mesh with the other people. So it goes well beyond just your, your GPA. It goes well because I think most people are applying to residency programs. When I look at their applications, it's it's very they're very top performers. So it's hard for me to say, oh, you got a three eight eight, and but this person got a three nine. Is that really a better candidate? And oftentimes, I'm going to say no because most of us are in the kind of a very similar kind of compressed ballpark within PT school. Um, it's more about the connection. So getting involved in the APTA, going to national conferences, meeting leaders in the field, reaching out to individuals, getting involved at a deeper level. I think those are great ways to build that network as well as build your own professional network of mentors uh, beyond just what a residency program is going to give you. Right. And it also shows, like you said earlier, that you're being proactive and that you want to learn. Absolutely. And that you're not just kind of sitting back and waiting for things to come to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fellowships, we know you, you, you're, you can't do that as a new grad. You've just established that. So let's talk about these programs. Are you better off doing it earlier in your career? Let's say new grad to maybe five years out. But what about later in your career? If you're 15, 20 years out, is there still is it still relevant for a you know a more seasoned clinician? I think you know this is a million dollar question. I've heard other residency directors answer this different ways. Um, there's kind of two takes on this question. I think the first one is well, you should do it early in your career because you don't want to learn bad habits. You want to elevate your practice as quickly as possible, not only for the benefit of your patients, but also for your own internal job satisfaction. And there's often this quote that I don't know where it really comes from, but they say that going through residency gives you the experience of something like a five-year practicing clinician. Um, you often hear this kind of statement. I don't really know where they get that data, but um, it's, uh, it's an interesting statement, an interesting take. Um, then there's the purview of, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't do residency right away after school because what if you haven't really found your, your niche yet? Um, you know, I definitely have colleagues who worked in multiple practice areas before they off, they finally found the area that they're like, this is actually where I want to be in PT. I thought I wanted to be in acute care, but really I found my passion was in pediatrics after I worked a couple different jobs and really kind of explored my own interests and career goals. And so early specialization can be somewhat detrimental in some ways, um, if you're, unless you're really certain about that career path. So I often say, weigh those two in terms of your own knowledge of self and what you want to accomplish in terms of what area of PT you really want to be in. Um, as, and then I also like to say, no matter what, anytime you go back to school and take a deep dive into current literature and are challenged to really evaluate your own clinical practice, 
I think it's a powerful learning experience. As a fellowship director, I had fellowship students who'd been practicing for over 40 years um, come back in and say this was an incredibly transformative process for them. And that's, I think that's a pretty powerful statement to say someone who's been doing this for that long can then come back in and be challenged and learn and grow as a clinician even you know, after decades of practice. And so I like to say, no matter what time in your career, you can always benefit from going back and learning more um, because our, the, the, the challenging part about PT is that our knowledge base keeps growing as well, too. So I think even they say after about five years of graduating from DPT school, a lot of what you've learned is mostly out of date and practices evolving. So what methods are you using in your own personal practice to actually stay abreast of change? And as you know, as a busy practicing clinician yourself, it's trickier um, than it sounds to stay abreast, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you have a podcast and you interview a lot of researchers, that kind of keeps you abreast on a lot of the new stuff. So I would highly recommend that as well. <laughs> do a residency and then do a podcast about your residency. <laughs> I'm sure that's already out there, right? It has to be. Someone has had to have thought of that already. Uh, you just mentioned briefly about data. So let's talk about data. Is there any data to show that doing a residency or a fellowship makes you a better clinician? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. Um, I really want that data. And a lot of people ask that question is like, well, you know, what am I really going to get out of a residency or a fellowship? Can you tell me it's really going to truly make me better as a clinician? Um, and, you know, there's really only been a handful of studies on this. Probably the most kind of widely cited is uh, Jason Rodigero's recent article that was in JOSPT in 2015, where they used photo data uh, focused on therapeutic outcomes to look at people who are fellowship trained versus residency trained versus non-fellowship residency trained and saw, do they have better outcomes? Um, and what they found in that study is that the fellows uh, tended to have better clinical outcomes and clinical efficiency than residents or non-resident trained clinicians. But there's a lot of kind of issues with photo data such that I only need to enter my patients who have positive outcomes per se, like I'm not required to enter all my patients. So you wonder about the veracity of that data, um, as well as they have to do a lot of adjustments because a lot of our residents are generally newer grads and so they have to adjust for years of experience. And so that's some of the criticisms from that article. It's hard to really kind of know for sure if residency education or fellowship education really makes a difference in your clinical outcomes. Um, there have been survey data though, um, you know, uh, let's see, I think it was uh, Jones in 2008 and Smith in 1999 that talked to graduates and said, hey, what did you think you got out of this program? I think that's a very uh, easy way to approach this, a qualitative study design rather than saying that you're definitely a better PT because we know that's a challenging question to answer at, and at any clinical level. Um, and then when they talked to graduates, they found that a huge percentage of them thought that they really were better clinicians. You know, they really had better examination skills, evaluation skills, intervention skills. Um, they had better communication skills with patients. They had more confidence. And that's a, one, that's a big one I hear from a lot of our new grads who go through, especially residency training. They're like, I gained so much confidence in my skill set. And that, I think, was probably the biggest thing I gained out of my residency. And that really impacted my patient outcomes tremendously, just being confident in how I'm able to talk to my patients with, the, with authority, right? Yeah, um, a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, you know, there's like other data that shows that you're more likely to have certain things come into your career um, in terms of going through a residency or fellowship program. Like you're more likely to get board certified um, in specialization. You're more likely to be a, a clinical instructor. Um, you're more likely to be a instructor in a physical therapy program or a residency or fellowship program. 
um, and then also move on to uh, serve as course coordinators within those. So and as opposed to people who don't go through that track. But um, that's a little bit tough sometimes because a lot of our people come into residency and fellowship training are highly motivated individuals. And so you wonder how much that is just due to their personalities versus the training they receive. That's something I often wonder about. But. Yeah, there's so many variables that could affect that data in so many different ways because we're dealing with people and we're dealing with how people interact with other people. So you could be the personality of the person, the drive, the all of this stuff can certainly affect outcomes when it comes to patients and outcomes when it comes to your career. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get to some of the questions from the DPT student page. So sure. Rebecca Brianne Goldberg asks, how do the long distance residencies work and how do you find them? So she's an older student who's established in a city she can't pick up her whole life and move for a year. So this is kind of like the difference between that hybrid versus the in-person. Yeah, so I think I'm in a rare position because I went through a kind of more traditional clinic-based residency model. So I went through a fellowship model, I went through Duke uh, University's manual therapy fellowship, and then I ran a hybrid online fellowship program. So I've been through both types of programs and there are some big advantages to the hybrid online programs. And her example is classic example of many of my past students and fellows is I hate I can't pick up and move my life and there's no programs near me that accomplish what I need to accomplish in terms of my career goals. That is the perfect as long as you're okay with the learning style of hybrid online. That is a perfect you're a perfect student to go into that type of program and that's exactly why they created those types of programs is we know we don't have the capacity um, to run everyone through a traditional clinic based model as well as it's just not feasible for many people to relocate. Um, and so in terms of finding those programs, that's a little bit trickier. Um, I know there's, what's tricky about it is that there's more residency programs every day. So I will never claim to have full knowledge of all residency programs. I think my last tally was it's up to 244. So we now have almost as many residency programs about as, as PT schools. And you can imagine going through your PT school selection process, how challenging that was. It's much like that way in many areas of residency education. I do know um, EIM, Evidence in Motion, runs several different programs like uh, neuro, sports, orthopedics, orthopedic manual physical therapy. Um, I believe St. Augustine also has an online orthopedics program. Um, my strategy, if I was trying to find these programs, would be first to start my specialty area and then look at each program within that specialty area. So if you're going into, let's say, women's health, right? So if I wanted to look at uh, women's health overall, well, there's nine programs. It'd be pretty easy for me to see if there's any kind of hybrid online programs within that area by going through each of their websites and finding that. Orthopedics is a little more daunting. As you mentioned, we're up over 100. Um, so it does take a little bit of research on your end. Um, I definitely don't want to say I have full knowledge of where all of them are, but I do know Evidence in Motion and uh, some other programs do have hybrid online versions, especially if you're thinking about manual therapy fellowship. There's quite a few options in the manual therapy fellowship world. And let's talk about the difference in mentorship between those two. Obviously, if you're in a, an in-person, real-life uh, situation versus the hybrid post part online part in real life, how does that mentorship change and how important is that? Yeah, so one of the things I loved about my clinical experience is that there's a lot of mentorship that occurs during non-official mentoring time. Um, oftentimes for the kind of more traditional clinic base, you have blocks of time built into the week where your mentor or yourself are 
putting purposely scheduling in patients that you're having challenges with, or they think you have a good learning opportunity with, and you could be challenged with. And so you have that block time set aside. However, you're often working in the same clinical space. So you often get to ask them quick questions. And um, as well as your mentorship is spread out throughout the entire residency or fellowship period. So as you grow, um, the types of questions you ask evolves with that. So I really like that model for uh, residency and fellowship education, I think it's an ideal model. Um, however, it's definitely not practical for everyone. And so what does that look like in some of these hybrid online programs is that oftentimes you're tasked with either reaching out to graduates of that program um, or people who have that credential in your local area, such as do you have any NCSs or OCSs within your area that would be willing to take you on as a mentor? Oftentimes, and you reach out to them, and we're, we're a very collegial community, um, and so if you have someone in your area, and that's if, you know, so some people will practice in more rural areas, um, that's definitely not even available at any level, but um, if you have someone in your area, oftentimes, you know, I've, I found many PTs are willing to have you come into at least their clinic um, and have you set, like, up a, a consistent mentoring time with them, like, let's say I do Friday afternoons, half days, so I can take off from clinic and I'll go come in. Uh, the disadvantages of that is now you're going into their clinic and seeing their patients, um, which, and depending upon how often you're going in there, it might be a whole new caseload every time you go in there. So you're trying to kind of relearn these patients um, every time. So I think that's a little bit challenging um, at times, but it depends. You might be able to set up something very similar as kind of a traditional clinical model. Mm -hmm. I've also seen people fly into areas to get mentorship where I'm going to take an entire week off from work. And I've, I know this mentor is willing to help me out, and I, I really respect them as a clinician. And I think I have a lot to learn from them. And so I'm going to take an entire week off and go do 40 hours of mentorship with them in one week. Um, and that can be a very powerful learning experience. But then because it's condensed, I think you lose a little bit of that evolution of thought process and questioning that occurs over the course of the mentorship. Um, and so I think sometimes that can be not as optimal um, as some of the other methods, but you know, I think it's still a great experience. Um, and, but it does, those mentorship kind of situations do require a lot of effort on your part to kind of reach out and set up these opportunities and to try and make it work within your schedule. And so that can be a little bit challenging at times, um, especially depending upon your local pool of available mentors. Yeah. Um, and, I should, and I should say some actually charge you to do this um, quite a bit of money um, where they, you come into their clinic and now they're actually charging you money for their mentorship, which can add thousands of dollars onto the cost of your residency or fellowship. So I should make you aware of that. That can be a hidden cost in some of those programs. Got it. And speaking of cost, let's talk about the cost of these programs because I don't think they're all free. I don't think they're free. You've got, you've got students coming out already riddled with six up to six figures or plus yeah. Yeah. Uh, multiple six figures in debt. Yeah. So where does a residency and a fellowship fit in there? And is it practical? I mean, maybe it's not practical for everyone, but how does residency and fellowship fit into this, this debt issue that students are facing now just from their undergrad to graduating with the DPT? Well, I think, yeah, the debt to earning ratio that we have as PTs is a huge issue um, in the program. Uh, we really work hard here in our program to try and keep our overall tuition costs down because 
I, yeah, I can't believe that some schools charge like over $150,000 in tuition plus living expenses. I mean, it's just a huge amount of debt to graduate with. And so it's very challenging. I think this day and age, when you graduate from these programs say, okay, I just graduated. I have a ton of debt, time to take on more. Right. You know, and, um, so I do think that's a big, that's a big issue or a big challenge, I should say, with residency fellowship education is that it definitely is not free at this time point. Um, you typically have kind of two types of models, uh, two flavors of costs that kind of come out in these. One is the three quarters pay uh, where you make a reduced salary because you're doing a reduced clinical load. So you might be seeing about 32 hours a week of patients. And the rest of the time, you're actually doing residency fellowship uh, education and training. And in which case you get paid because you get reimbursed for your actual billable time. Um, so you get paid about three quarters of the salary. So in that model, you're actually not taking on debt. You're just losing out on potential income or you know some opportunity costs um, with that. Um, and then there's the other model, which is more of a tuition-based model, where typically there you might have more of a full clinical load, but now you're paying tuition into a program. So this might be something like a hybrid online program where I do my clinical, like my residency hours and education after my clinic hours. Um, and so you're really kind of paying with kind of income or time in some ways. I think that's a very easy way to kind of boil that down. Um, it comes from somewhere. Um, I do see in the tuition-based models uh, that sometimes employers are quite willing uh, to actually uh, use your con ed money towards uh, paying for your residency and fellowship education because they know that um, that can be a big value to their clinic, um, as well as if they know that that's a, a career goal of yours, that can be a great way to bring an employee that you're very interested in recruiting into your clinic is offering that as a potential that you'd be willing to pay their tuition. And so I do have uh, many examples of past uh, residents and fellows who, uh, who've had their entire fellowship or residency paid for through that kind of model. So. Okay, so there are options. There are possibilities out there. There are possibilities, yeah. Find, be proactive and seek them out. Okay, so I think we already sort of asked uh, Jenna Cantor's question was, why should I pursue a residency and can I achieve growth without it? So I think we talked about why you should pursue residency. That. But can you achieve growth without a residency? Uh, yes, I mean, I would say absolutely. Um, I think residencies, fellowships, they offered a structured didactic curricula, which is great, um, as well as structured mentorship opportunities. So those are two very powerful learning experiences. Can I create my own structured learning plan? Absolutely. Having the residency is good because you have a structured mentorship and a structured program versus a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like an a la carte menu. Yeah, the, yeah, the a la carte approach um, can sometimes I understand the temptation towards it. Well, let me take a course over here. I have, I've had quite a few patients, maybe in this category. I definitely want to learn more about that. Um, the problem is a lot of these courses you go to really don't kind of go through the kind of the clinical reasoning and applied elements um, that I think are the most important aspects. You get a lot of techniques that you go to these courses, a lot of ideas, but really the application side is where they have, they have to fall down because they don't really have the time to go through a lot of that oftentimes. Right. Um, and so I do think that's a little bit more challenging. So that's why I recommend sitting down with a mentor who you identify, you know, hopefully through some of your professional connections and your local community connections um, in terms of what would be a good learning plan for me as an individual. Like here are my goals. Here, here's my self-assessed weaknesses that I see. Um, let's come up with a structure uh, in terms of how I'm going to actually approach this as well as let's also set up some time 
to do some mentorship. Like there's no reason you can't go and mentor with anyone in your own clinical community. Um, yeah. you know, and so I do it all the time. Like I go shadow with people that I know who are excellent clinicians. I'm like, I've always wondered, you know, I know you helped one of my patients who had a really hard time with, and I really want to come see how you practice and see if I can learn from that. Um, and I think that's been really powerful learning uh, opportunities for me. So I've had a ton of mentors who are definitely outside of official mentorship capacity, um, but have profoundly impacted my career. So I definitely think you can set these things up, especially if you're in that situation of our kind of previous individual who's like, I can't move. Um, this isn't really a reality for me. And so there are educational resources you can leverage as well as your local clinical resources to kind of create what's going to be the best learning environment for you as well, team. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people like runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. Like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health conscious lifestyle. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ, and you must qualify to get the special rate. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS. Let's get into Kyle Ridgway have a number of questions, but we'll sort of, we're going to just kind of put those under like one umbrella, I think. And do you think re residency education should be mandatory? Because yes. this was something that was floated around by the task force for the APTA. They want to make it mandatory. We all know the answer, what happened the answer to that question Should it yeah, be the answer the answer was no right yeah yeah and for for a lot of reasons you know the the cons you know the biggest cons against that you know would i personally love to see that absolutely would i love to see everyone in our profession practicing at a very high level and i could have it absolute confidence that anyone, you know, my loved ones want to go see who's a PT would deliver the best care. I would love that. Nothing more than make me happier in life. We know that it's definitely not the reality in our profession. And that's why that recommendation was made, right? Is that we have all this kind of unwarranted variation in practice. We need to kind of try and figure out a way to kind of systematize and our educational processes to really reduce that and really raise the level of education up from, for all clinicians. Right. Um, and, but we know, as you mentioned already, just the availability problem. You know, there's 244 residency programs that is definitely not enough, you know, for even our graduates of our PT programs, um, let alone all current, current practicing clinicians um, to go into those. So availability is a huge bottleneck right now. Um, there, there might be ways to reduce some of that, but it's currently a big problem. Um, we know cost, as you mentioned, is, is a big factor as well. Mm -hmm. And then we already talked a little bit about the early specialization aspect as well, too. If I'm kind of pigeonholed into choosing my track very early in my DPT career, is that the best path for all clinicians to go on, um, especially the clinicians. And we have many students who are, well, you know, I have strong interest in three or four different areas, and I'm still kind of trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, early specialization would be really detrimental to their growth and potential of their long-term satisfaction in the profession as well. Too. And what about variances within residency programs? I mean, is there a standard of uh, competency that residency programs have to pass in order to get certified as a residency program or can I just 
make one up out of the air and say, I'm doing a concierge PT residency program. Applaud. Yeah, I, I wish you were that easy. Uh, I, having gone through the accreditation process, I, I really wish it was that easy. Um, it is not. We do have an external accreditation board, ABTRE, A-B-P-T-R-F-E, uh, American Board of Physical Therapy Residency and Fellowship uh, Education, and they come in and accredit your residency and or fellowship program. And it's a pretty intensive process. Um, you have to go through a candidacy phase. They come in, they do site visits, um, and they look at your entire curriculum, your assessment methods. They come watch mentoring sessions. It's a very intensive process. And I'll say also slightly costly um, from many different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that kind of level of quality control. I'd say it's nowhere near as onerous as going through uh, CAPT accreditation. So our program is currently going through CAPT, and that's the board that looks at DPT education. That's a much more rigorous process. Um, I was looking that up the other day. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very intensive, and so we're going to put about two or three years of work as a faculty into getting ready for that process, and so it's a huge amount of time. Um, but I'd still say even within DPT programs, we have a huge amount of variability in the quality of education. We do have very kind of young programs that have sprung up because there's a huge demand uh, for PTs, and so there's lots of people who want to take advantage of that, right? And so they're saying, hey, there's huge demand. Let's open up a PT school when they might not have the resources uh, to actually do that in an effective manner, and so that's kind of I think a challenge for our profession right now. And the same thing applies in residencies. We have, you know, some small clinics that definitely do start their own residency and fellowship programs um, that may not have the resources to really do a good job on, especially the didactic end is where I see kind of the smaller programs tend to struggle a little bit more um, in the terms that they have to come up with a curriculum for the resident or fellow, as well as maintain that over time. And when you're not talking about a high volume of residents, like you might only have one or two coming through per year, how much time can you really dedicate to keeping your curriculum cutting edge? You know, and, and the answer is it's really, really difficult, right? And so you do get a lot of variability in the didactic end. Um, and then you'll get a lot of very vari variability in the mentorship side of things. You know, mentors do need to be have a process for evaluation within your program, but and they do have to meet a minimum threshold. So I do think mentors within these programs are much better and higher quality than what we get in kind of our clinical internships and DPT education. However, there's still a huge amount of variability in the quality of those mentors um, across programs. And so how do we come up with methods to make sure that all residency and fellowship programs are really kind of performing in a high level? Um, and that's definitely a current topic of debate. And there's lots of strategies that have been kind of floated around on how to do that. But it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a big challenge. And so that's where I definitely say you need to do your homework on your programs in terms of if it's really going to be a good program overall, but more importantly, a good fit for you and your learning style and, and goals. And now, kind of the opposite of that question was, let me see, I think it was Preston. Preston Collins um, asked, with a push towards residency and fellowship within the PT field, do you anticipate this will cause another wide variance in knowledge and training of therapists, such was the case from baccalaureate to the master's to the DPT? What are your thoughts on that? It's kind of the... The, the opposite of early specialization and getting all this training. Well, what about the people who didn't go through programs? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no, it is the opposite, you know, and so that's where, you know, the argument was made, right, that this will decrease unwanted variation, right, in the, in the, in the overall profession, the idea being. But then you would have this kind of educational gap unless you made it, but kind of 
well, we're going to have phased requirements. Like in the next 10 years, all PTs who are practicing have to go through this process. You could make some sort of stipulations like that. So this was never sketched out, but you could do something like that. Typically, though, if you look at other medical professions, they typically just grandfather everyone in, right, in terms of saying, okay, we're now all, and that's been talked at the DPT level as well, too. Like, it's just too confusing. We have PT, MPT, DPT. Let's just make everyone DPTs. That's been talked about before, right? And there's definitely people who feel strongly for that. And from a public marketing perspective, because that was part of Colin's uh, question is like, people are so confused right now when they come to PTs. It's like, well, what training do you have? Like, I'm just confused. There's all these different, like you have 30 letters after your name. Like, what do any of them mean? I have no idea. Like, I don't even know what any letters after your name mean. Like, are you qualified to give me care? Yes, I'm qualified to give you care. Sometimes I remember I was working with a group who were not PTs, was sort of an entrepreneurial group. And I had had something down on like a speaker one sheet that I was, you know, PT school. And they were like, does that mean you went to school part time? <laughs> That's and great. They, yeah. they didn't even know that it meant physical therapy. So if you yeah. have PT, DPT, OCS, SCS, PTH, PTO, who knows what all this stuff means? So from a consumer standpoint, if if the if physical therapy was set up more like the medical model, like most people know, you graduate from medical school, you go on your residency, and yep. then then you're you know a full fledged physician. You know what I mean? Like you're fully cooked, if you will. Yep. So is that something that you think the public would understand a little bit more about if that were part of the PT profession? I think that's definitely one of the pushes for the adoption of the medical model into PT school education um, is just that it's familiar as well as it's been shown to lead to, you know, a very high quality level of practitioner coming out, Um, especially, you know, as our knowledge base really continues to expand, we really struggle with trying to fit everything we can into our DPT curriculum. And every year, the biggest stressor is what do I have to cut out of my course to make room for this awesome new information and it just gets harder and harder really and so the idea that we'd have more time and that's also something our students need we know that if we compress it even more they just get more stress because it's so much to learn right and then you just need time to practice some of these things and so it would give us the advantage of time standardization familiarity from the public perspective um, i think those are all huge advantages Um, I do like that at least we have some tools that I have seen some consumers use, like you have your find a PT function in terms of orthopedic specialists, as well as um, the fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapist has find a fellow. Um, And I definitely have had patients just reach out to me and say, hey, I found you on this website search tool because I'm looking for a specialist within my area because I've, you know, usually these people who have more complex cases and they've been to PT already and they haven't had success and they've been encouraged to find someone who's more of a specialist in that area and they kind of find their way through that pathway. But that's definitely a rare consumer that I think has that knowledge to even go to the APTA or any of these organizations and look for these things. It's pretty rare. Yeah, 100%. And now let's, we'll sort of wind things down with an interesting question from Cody West. And we've been talking about residencies here and fellowships to a certain extent, but his question is, will fellowship training be the new norm 10 years from now? So now we talked about what you need to get into fellowships. You need to be a specialist within your area. So if that's the norm, then does that mean everybody becomes a specialist in their area? Yeah, so I would say, 
Probably not fellowship. Yeah, mostly just from the aspect of like we talk about a bottleneck in residency training. Now, if we go to fellowship training, now there's I think we're at about 49 total and almost all of those are in orthopedic manual physical therapy. And so um, clearly that will not fit the needs of many, many practicing professionals. And so unless um, there's a big boom in the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. The, the orthopedic manual physical therapy programs can hold a lot of capacity. A lot of these do have 50 plus students in them. So at least there aren't more of your like traditional style model where you just have one or two individuals. So they do have more capacity at least, but um, definitely there's, there's very few other fellowship areas that actually have more than just, you know, two or three actual programs. And so that would be a very large challenge to get us all through that. That is not very practical. Um, so before we wrap things up, what would you say are the two or three big takeaways that you'd like people to leave from this discussion on residencies and fellowships? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, so, you know, my big takeaways would be, I think, first and foremost, that um, residency and fellowship education, I think, are incredible. Like, I see them as investments in your overall career. Um, and Ultimately, I think that it leads to a lot of increased job satisfaction, um, just as your clinical skills grow. Um, and it's a very powerful and transformative experience. And so I do highly encourage people, if they have the ability, to seek out the opportunity to do them. I do think it's worth it. Um, to me, is one of my most impactful experiences as a physical therapist. And so I do highly encourage people. Um, I also like to tell people, though, that if that's not in the cards for you, for many reasons, right, is that come up with a plan to, you know, how do you create your own residency? And we talked a little bit about strategies to do that. And I do think you can create a good learning plan and as well as local mentorship plan, especially if you're active and you're like local chapter of the APTA. I think that's a great place to meet clinical resources if you don't already have those mm -hmm. um, available to where you work. Um, and to really reach out to those mentors. Um, I know, like I'm chair of the mentorship committee here in, in uh, the Colorado chapter. And, you know, one of our jobs is to try and connect those clinicians, the younger clinicians or the clinicians maybe who have, you know, a desire to grow their skills, you know, and those opportunities do exist. So I do say, you know, be, be a lifelong learner. That's what I would say to people, because I do think that's what it takes to be a great clinician in this day and age, especially. And so I do think there are ways of doing that that are much beyond residency and fellowship. Because in many ways, I think a lot of our students are like, if I don't do one now, then I'm really not going to be a good PT. And I really have to do one. They almost feel like it's a, a have to as opposed to this is an investment. This is something I want to do. Um, and I don't think it's a have to by any means. That's great. And then last question, knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad right out of physical therapy school? Uh, it's good. I love when you spring. I know any of these questions are coming, so this is good. So what advice would I give to myself? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I would say, you know, trust, trust yourself, you know, believe in yourself, follow your intuition. Um, I've always kind of followed my heart. And I think that's what I tell myself to do, even though I think when you leave PT school, that's kind of this very uncertain time. Like, can I find the right job? You know, there's a lot of self-doubt that kind of comes in at this time, especially if it takes you a little while to find um, a good fit for you. But I do say, you know, take the time to find a really good fit for you after DPT school. Don't just jump at the first thing that you see. Find a really good 
first job, if at all possible, with good mentorship, already those things built in so that you're going to grow into a good clinician as opposed to working for a place that's really going to, you know, burn you out from high productivity standards or poor mentorship. So try and, you know, follow your instincts, follow your heart and know that everything's going to be okay in the end. I think that's great advice. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And sorry, everyone watching. Um, we had obviously some technical glitches, but whatever, it happens. Um, so thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. And I think this was answered everybody's questions on residencies and fellowships. So if you guys have any continued questions on residency and fellowships, you can put these in right underneath uh, this video once it's up on Facebook. So, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. And I hope you all have a great rest of your evening. A huge thanks to Michael for sharing all that great information. Wasn't that amazing? And of course, thank you to our sponsor for today's episode, Health IQ. They use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like runners, swimmers, cyclists, strength trainers, CrossFitters, you name it. So if you like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS or head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Click on the Health IQ link on our homepage and start saving money on your life insurance. So everybody, thanks for listening to today's episode. Have a great weekend and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.